welcome to this special edition EE Times podcast. This year, 2022, marks the 50th anniversary of EE Times. This publication came into being only months after Intel ushered in the modern computing era with the first microprocessor in November 1971. EE Times has been at the forefront of reporting and analysing the hugely significant advances in electronic engineering over this last half century. These are the advances that have resulted in the rapid innovation that today has significant impact on people's day-to-day lives. We've looked at the evolution of the semiconductor industry and every facet of this, from Moore's law to EUV lithography, from passive components to mixed signal ICs to optoelectronics. We have unpacked the news from this industry to help readers keep on top of all the tools of the trade, including electronic design systems, test and measurement equipment, production gear, and more. As one former editor-in-chief of EE Times, Steve Weitzner, said, EE Times would not have become the newspaper for the engineering community without brilliant leadership on the business side too. From its very beginnings under founder Jerry Leeds, through the cosmic leadership of the late Frank Burge, and especially Girish Matre, the publishers of EE Times knew they were doing something special. We had leaders who understood and never compromised on the formula of quality editorial, integrity in reporting, and, most important, making EE Times interesting to read. To commemorate the 50th anniversary, we brought back two of those leaders to reflect on the evolution of EE Times and how it will become even more important as technology becomes an ambient part of people's lives, as one of our guests on the podcast puts it. My first guest, Richard Wallace, joined EE Times in 1987 and spent the next 21 years shaping the global editorial teams as the publication looked at cross-pollinating content from the US, Europe, and Asia. He talks about how electronics engineers regarded EE Times as an authoritative source, especially as many of the reporters were actually engineers or came from the industry. And then we tapped the wisdom of my second guest, Girish Matre, to reflect on the more significant role of semiconductors in the world we live in today, and the implications of how we ensure that EE times remain relevant in the context of that wider role we have in the industry. Having joined EE times in 1978, Girish spells out how the EE times mantra of being in the business of technology played a key role in the defining of a distinctive editorial strategy. He also touches on what we should be thinking of in the future, especially around the ethics of technology and how EE Times can maintain its role as a leading forum in this debate. So, now, let's talk to my first guest, Richard Wallace. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm good, Nitin. I'm very happy to be with you here today for this interview. Now, you're, you're a very big part of that history of EE Times. Just tell me, uh, how do you happen to start on EE Times and when? Right. Well, yeah, it was planned to the extent that I wanted to get into reporting and journalism, but I didn't really have much of a background in it. Uh, but anyway, so basically, before I joined E Times, I spent 12 years learning to be a newspaper reporter at Electronic News, which was a, 
a weekly newspaper that preceded um, E.E. Times, mostly covered the business side. But that's really kind of where I learned uh, the craft of reporting and journalism under a, a legendary editor, James Lydon, James mm-hmm. J. Lydon. And, uh, and so eventually what happened was I had a beat that I covered. Uh, I covered instrumentation and then eventually I covered uh, the equipment that was used to make semiconductors. So I had kind of a broad outlook on the electronics industry starting in, I started as a reporter in 1976. So I worked for almost a dozen years reporting on the industry and the evolution of these businesses and technology before I even joined E-Times, which was in August of, of 1987. So that's sort of how I came to it. I was happy to be a reporter. I got recruited by Girish and Steve to come over. They were trying to build up the news side of of E-Times, and that was something that I had some expertise in. So it was a good fit. I started as a reporter and um, eventually uh, ended up in a lot, in several senior management positions, all on the editorial side, all in editorial uh, right. uh, management and editorial development. So you started in 1987, and uh, how long were you there? When did you When did you leave? 2008. Okay, so, December 2008. And by then, you were what role at, at EE Times? I was still vice president editorial director, but I had I had responsibility for all of the global operations as Got well. Got it. And uh, yeah, we'll come to that global bit in a minute. But um, in your tenure at BE Times, how do you think, uh, from 1987 to 2008, how do you think the industry uh, and the, the market transitioned? And what did you need to change in your uh, sort of management roles at EE Times to reflect that changing need? Well, so, you know, in that period, uh, 87 and even before then, uh, the industry was going through really what I would call hyper growth. Um, you know, the, it was driven by the, uh, initially, the, it was driven by the PC industry, demand for microprocessors and memory and, and this sort of thing, peripherals. But eventually it spread to everything. And so as the industry got bigger and bigger, and bigger, and there was more interest in what was going on. And so it was a challenge uh, to cover it in, in sort of, you know, I always think of it as sort of covering the waterfront. The reader wants to know as much as he can about what's going on in industry segments, in, in markets with products and this sort of stuff. So the challenge was really just to keep up with it, you know, this fire hose of information that was coming at us you know, const- constantly. Fortunately, at E Times, we had a, a nice editorial budget and a good editorial staff, and we had editorial resources in all of the key markets, most of the key markets around the world. You know, this enabled us to, when it was a print publication, this enabled us to bring all the kind of key stories of the week from different regions together into the newspaper and you know we did that until the internet came along and then we just kind of transferred the process of putting information uh, out to the reader into online of course it was a much more uh, complicated process than that but that eventually what happened and then eventually print went away so i i I probably like a lot of former print people lament the demise of the of the print product in in this industry and in you know in general. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing it now. We're seeing the the de newspaperization of uh, 
you know, um, local markets all, all over the country. I don't know what it's like in the UK. I think the I think Europe's a stronger print market than the US ever was. It is. It is. So, you know, again, it's, it's a very US centric view, I think, that I have of the publishing business for sure. Um, just uh, give our listeners a, a, an idea of the scale of the operation. How many ed- editors or what was your team like in the heyday in terms of numbers? Uh, sometimes I Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can't believe it, uh, uh, Nitin, when and you ask me this question. But I tell people this, and this, you know, at the height, at the height of running that the whole operation there, we had a five million dollar editorial budget, a one million dollar freelance budget, and that we, I had over thirty reporters on the staff. That was just wow. staff. Then we had, uh, you know, all these freelancers. We had another. 20 freelancers that we dealt with. So, you know, we had several score of reporters, many of them the top reporters in their field. You know, it makes a big difference when you uh, are trying to keep up with and uh, uh, position yourself in an industry where became what was known, I think, as a, an authoritative source. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we became known as an authoritative source is that we worked hard and diligently at uh, presenting or at, uh, re- doing the best reporting job that we possibly could. And I, I think at the end of the day, certainly in retrospect, you know, the one thing that I would say was the privilege that I had mm. as, an, as an editor and as an editorial director was to work with some of the best journalists I know in the world. And I, I say that a lot of people think, well, yeah, but you just covered you know, business. Well, I don't take that line. Uh, I see a lot of terrible reporting and have in my lifetime. I've seen some great, great reporting over my years from reporters at E-Times, and I continue to still see some great reporting from people who worked for E-Times. So that's ex- extremely gratifying because I took the craft, I do take the craft very seriously. Mm. And uh, I was really uh, fortunate to be in a position where my management and the company that I worked for had a very similar kind of a view. And so uh, they, they supported the growth, they supported the development. Uh, budgets were never... They were an issue at some point. We had our ups and downs, of course, mm. with with the economy. But, uh, you know, the full support of management made a big difference because particularly I'm getting ahead of myself. But we talked about developing the international operation. Yes. yes. And, and that really started. It started with the online, really. And what what we did there was we tr- we, we started bringing the online brand to Europe and then we brought the online brand to Asia. There had been some other separate publications that CMP had started, one in the European market, one in the Asian market. We eventually absorbed the reporting staff of both of these publications. That's how the headcount got to 30, because uh-huh. we absorbed them. We absorbed guys like Rick Merritt, the reporters in the you know in Taiwan and Hong Kong and the Far East. Then we picked up all the reporters, the reporter, many of the reporters who were still in Europe. So it was a big, robust organization. But as we moved into Europe, and especially if we moved into Asia, 
setting up editorial operations, setting up business operations and all that. It's a very complicated process. Yes. And uh, But we had the benefit, again, this was corporate CMP at its best before it went into sort of some retrograde. Uh, but they had great accountants. They had great international lawyers. And so, you know, if you were in a place where you were going to set up publishing operations, I use China as the best example. They went at it in a very serious and diligent way, and we eventually formed a very important partnership for covering electronics in Asia with uh, with with global uh, with global sources. But all of these uh, all of these global operations really, I think, the thing that helped grow and sustain them was there was a lot of enthusiasm in the market for this information, particularly in China. When we started in China. If we showed up with, if we showed up at an at an event anywhere in China mm. with ten data sheets, I'm not even talking about newspapers with data sheets. <laughs> they, the, the Chinese were so hungry for information in in the '90s about you know related to electronics uh, uh, assembly and manufacturing and design. When we would go to these events, so we started a publication and. It was that we would be mo- literally mobbed. There would be hundreds of people who would we'd have we'd have maybe thirty. We had thirty or forty issues. You know, we were still getting more, but mobs. Would be, all I'm saying is the demand for information in in Asia in the '90s as China was emerging was just enormous. So that helped again in terms of the business support because there was so much advertising to be had. At one point, the industry had. 10 or 12 key publications. E-Times, for most of the time, was the largest of them all in terms of market size. Mm. But we had significant, the the paper had significant competitors in in print and and online. Mm. So it it wasn't just E-Times that was booming. The whole industry was booming, you know, through the 90s, right up until really, uh, I think, you know, the real... The major turning point in this century, of course, was the was the the great uh, uh, economic undoing that started in two thousand eight. The collapse of the, yeah. the collapse of Lehman, the collapse of the financial system. Right. So that was uh, that, more more impactful that, than, than the dot com crash in two thousand for, for our industry. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that and that you know the dot com crash, I think, was. Uh, you know, the only thing the only thing that surprises me about the dot com crash is that there haven't been more of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We see those cycles. I think there's so much there's so much speculation in, um, you know, some of these these new markets. Let's go to that sort of internationalization. You've addressed that. Well, I remember working with you on one very tiny bit of that in India. But uh, I think that was just a very tiny bit of it. You said China right. was strong. I do too. I remember that. Yeah. But um, in becoming international, in terms of internationalization of the brand and, and uh, of the business, did that mean you had to change the way you sort of uh, were doing reporting? Or how did that carry through? Or did you keep the sort of uh, individual well, brands? Well, so the idea always from the beginning always from the beginning, and this was, you know, Steve and Gears and I were um, all of a mind on this and all of the publishers were as well, which was the brand is E-Times. We had other brands in the house, 
but E Times was the was the strong brand, and so the idea or the desire was to bring that brand into places around the world where it was already known in many cases, but not available, not available in print, but available online. And so the necessity then became um, localizing the brand for uh, the key markets that we wanted, that we were in. And, and of course in Asia, it's different now because uh, there were, we, we weren't any, we weren't under any, restrictions nor were we in under any illusions about our ability to come and go and report on what was going on in china i think it would be problematic today certainly the things that we did would in asia you know we drew guys from um or they did i'm talking about our our publish a publishing partner in china and in asia uh global sources so it was a joint venture they owned 51 we owned 49 percent so they more or less ran the show but in the beginning and when we set things up, I had a free hand in setting up the editorial operations. I had a very good working relationship with Sarah Beneke and on the business side. So um, that worked very well. And they were very keen to make sure that the product that we brought to China and to other parts of Asia, eventually uh, Japan, but that's a separate story. Mm. They, they, they wanted to make sure that it was the E-Times that they they knew and that their readers knew. And so the challenge was really to get it up to that high level in these local markets. And that required, in some instances, training. So we made a commitment to do a lot of training. And I I was on a few of the missions, but people like George Leopold and Rick Merritt, yep. you know, they went and they could tell you this story, but uh we had started an operation in, oh no, they'd moved operations to the Philippines, to Manila. And uh, we needed to train some people there. So uh, George and and Rick Merritt went in for a week to train, I think it was three or four of the reporters there. But it was kind of hairy. Uh, it was not a particularly safe place. You could ask George and Rick about it, but I remember hearing some pretty hairy stories about it. They were happy to have wheels up when they left. The point is, we, we, where we went and whatever we did, we got on the ground and we basically uh, went about doing what we what we did, which was find out what's going on in this industry, what's important, who are the movers and the shakers, you know, what are the key technologies that are driving the business, and report that uh, to the readers in as wide a way as we could. So we got a lot of good reporting out of Asia that went into the U.S. edition. Uh, the the reporting in the U.S. edition, the stories in the U.S. edition were of interest to the readers in Europe, of course, and in Asia. So a lot of what a lot of what I did as editor, and, and at this time was in addition to basically being in charge of um, all of the editorial staffs, was to put together three separate newspapers every week. <laughs> and this is still print. We, we yeah. still do. We we're still doing three print editions, put together three separate print editions every week, one for Europe, or maybe it was every other week. Yeah. Yeah. One, yeah, one week it was Europe. It was every week the US, and then the next week it was Asia. So we did that for a long, we did that for a long time. But the, the thing was, it was the blending and the mixing of stories that helped make the publication maybe more robust and more interesting and getting stories from these places around the world where the industry was really just beginning or really beginning having 
a major impact. Yep. Yeah. China, uh, Taiwan, uh, Thailand, Hong Kong, Singapore, all these places um, are and were extremely important. And uh, we did a lot of good reporting about it. And then eventually, as the print public print market dried up, I guess, uh, we morphed all of these products into online products. And uh, many of them survived as hybrids print online. But I think mostly now the brand is is online. I'm not that familiar with okay. what's going yeah. on in the eight or European side of things, but uh, certainly in the U.S. Well, it's a very yeah, uh, U.S.-centric brand. We do have E times Europe print still, and there are still various print publications. So tell me, uh, Richard, um, over those years at E Times, do you have a, a, a favorite moment or something that sticks in your mind or something that you think uh, you made impact with? There's there's a lot of them, but I can tell you one that was, I was very fortunate to have the staff that I had and the organization that I had and the budget that I had. And I, I tried to take advantage of it because I, I was on a mission to be a good editor, to be, a, I wanted to, I, all I ever really wanted to be in my life knitting was a newspaper reporter, really. Mm-hmm. That, and, and I felt that that was the highest aspect. I, if I became a newspaper reporter, I would um, achieve the aspiration that I had. And I did. And, uh, and I realized after that, subsequently, many years, going through many, many positions, that that was the pinnacle of my career when I was a reporter. And I took everything I knew as a reporter, and it, it sort of trans, transitioned it. I learned a lot as a reporter, and I think it helped me tremendously as an editor. But I didn't stop there because... I was really curious about the beats that the reporters that worked for me covered. And I wanted to know more about it. I just had an insatiable curiosity for everything. I still do to a great extent, but so it was like a kid in a candy store, you know, to cover this fabulous industry, which I always was interested in with this great staff of people. Richard, um, tell me, what are you up to now? A lot of people cycled through the newspapers that I worked for, particularly E-Times. People would come and people would go. A lot of people stayed a long time. I stayed a long time. I was there for 21 years. But people often would ask who left E- E-Times. Was, it, was, it wasn't just a newspaper in its heyday. It, to me, honestly, it, it felt like a it felt like a university to me. It felt like a place that was a center of, a, a lot of knowledge mm. imbued in, in a lot of senior people who who were reporters, but many of them were also engineers. So they had a lot more depth and breadth than a lot of the editorial people who were just news reporters like me, for instance, and not an engineer. So what are you doing now, Richard? So I'm uh, so basically I've discovered that there is life after E times. That's the first thing. <laughs> after I, after I left the publication, uh, I started a couple of side businesses in the uh, editorial advertising businesses online. Um, a very difficult business. So I just after a while I just kind of migrated away from from the industry. Really, I'm still interested in writing. I have writing projects that I work on. But I've gotten interested in some things that I never had time for when I was um, a younger man, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is woodworking. So I've gotten interested in woodworking. I put together a woodworking shop in a, in a barn close by where I live here. I live in a little city up in the Hudson River near 
uh, close to the country. So I have a place that I can go and do some uh, woodworking and stuff. So uh, I'm, I have my uh, grandchildren uh, in New York City, whom I see frequently. I don't do a lot of traveling. I did travel last year. I went to Greece for the first time in several years. So I'm very comfortably retired here in Hudson, uh, New York, which is a lovely little um, more like a village than a city. And it's a really high quality of life here. Yeah. So basically, I've, I have I went through a period of semi-retirement, and then I uh, woke up one day and realized, gee, I'm completely retired, and, and I enjoy this. So that's really what, I, what I've been doing. I've just been yeah. enjoying having time to myself. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure both talking to you and also working with you over the years. I think I've known you for many years. Uh, thank you very it's much been for a, participating. Well, thank you, Nitin, and it has been a pleasure to, to work, especially with you um, over, over the years. I've enjoyed the connections that I've made through uh, through journalism uh, to the people uh, that I know. And, uh, you know, the, the gratifying thing for me is I, I, I don't have many Facebook people that I know in my sort of social circles in, on Facebook, but I'm connected to almost most of the people that I worked with mm. in the electronics industry for more than 25 years. So I I've been following their their retirements and their careers for many, many years. It's quite gratifying. So, well, thank you, Nitin. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. I wish you best of luck with, uh, uh, with, the, uh, with the issue here. Thanks, Richard. Now, let's turn to Girish Matre. Hello, I'm with Girish Matre. Hi, Girish. Hi, Nitin. Nice to hear from you. Tell me uh, a little bit about what your involvement with E-Times was right at the beginning and, and what was the thinking and the strategy then? Yeah, sure. Well, I joined E-Times uh, in 1978 as semiconductor editor. I was uh, an engineer then. I used to read E-Times, and, and so I joined E-Times. And um, that time, um, in those days, you know, Technical magazines, the group that included the Times, aimed at engineers, were really about uh, new products and product specs and you know how to design articles, things like that. And our uniqueness at E Times uh, was recognizing early that the reader has to be treated as a whole person, uh, recognizing that engineers are not pure scientists that they build products for the marketplace and the increasingly global market space. And thus they had to understand and accommodate external forces. So mm. we expanded our focus deliberately to include the business of technology. And that really became our watchword, our watch phrase. Our mantra was business and technology are inextricably intertwined. Mm. And the, the, so the, the linking of, of business as a driver of technology and vice versa, I think, played a very key role in defining the edit, a distinctive editorial strategy. And it served us well because, you know, at that time, Japan was ascendant, not, not China. Mm. Uh, there was a chip trade war uh, and much discussion, as is going on right now, about U.S. competitiveness and uh, the U.S.'s ability to retain self-sufficiency and state-of-the-art. Memory chips was the big thing then, specifically right. the, the one megabit generation of the DRAM. 
and what the role of the U.S. government should be in protecting the chip industry. And, and E Times took the lead in covering these issues. And, um, you know, uniquely, I think, in our space. And, uh, and, and readers rewarded us with that. I mean, just tell me, you started as semiconductor editor. So, uh, so you, you ended up shaping a lot. Uh, you, you spent quite a lot of time with E Times, shaping a lot of the magazine uh, as your career evolved there. Yes, I started as semiconductor editor and uh, I uh, ended up as a group publisher of uh, the, the E Times group, which included EBN, et cetera. But I took my time. It took 20 years to get there <laughs> from being semiconductor editor. So in your tenure there, so that's 20 years, what, what do you think, uh, sort of, where was it at when you left? And yeah, so let's, then we'll launch into a little discussion of where it should go in the future. Uh, e Times had become a, you know, a, a dominant player in the, if I may say so, uh, in the, in, in our space, you know, but that is uh, a space defined by uh, the types of readers that we were trying to attract and electronics engineers, that is. And mm. it was, it was uh, the best read, uh, you know, and uh, by a wide margin, uh, based on various industry readership studies. As and 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 we carried more advertising pages. Yeah, I I, I think I looked at, uh, I think I looked at some magazine stats, and although uh, these are not competitive to E Times, we E Times had more advertising pages than well-known publications like The Atlantic and, mm. uh, and <laughs> New York Magazine and whatnot. So, uh, and, and you have to remember, this was print. I mean, I, I remember, I think, something in 1998 when I started doing a lot with the E-Times. Um, it was around 160,000 print circulation worldwide. Was that right? Yes, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was quite big then. Let's move on. Uh, I know there's, there's a lot of history, and I, I think it's always good to dwell on history, but let's move on to the future. You see what it is now. Where, should, where do you think things should be going and uh, what's the future? Not necessarily for EE times, but generally. Yeah, I, th I think the thing is that um, there, there, there is a, the, the emerging issues of technology, I believe, are around the ethics of technology. And, and I just want to make it very clear, by technology, I mean the whole human ecosystem, technologists, the technocrats, the taxpayers, the government, the, the, the hardware itself, the semiconductor, the electrons don't care about ethics or uh, mm. you know, their behavior is, is, not, is orthogonal to the concept of ethics. So anyway, this uh, by technology and the ethics of technology is so important to us right now that E-Time should aim to become the leading forum for debate on such issues. It, it is time for the industry to, to indulge in some introspection, I believe, about what it is and where it is going. And, and I think E-Time should spark those discussions. Mm. So it's just kind of an ambitious kind of thing, but why the hell not? You know, I mean, the, see, see, what happens is that tech publications such as E Times and its ilk tend to view technology through rose-colored glasses. Right. Uh, it's, it's sort of a natural thing. It's part of their world. But but now is the time, I believe, to hold tech to account, and we need a voice that's 
you know, to that old phrase, speaks truth to tech power and, and actually in the process helps us better understand our relationship to technology. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think it is important right now. The first thing is that is the, is the growing power of big tech. You know, I, I reported on this somewhere else, so I'll read yes. it out to you. Today, the top five U.S.-based companies by market cap are all tech companies. Yes. Together, they're worth nearly $9 trillion. They have become expert at crushing emerging competition by wielding their market power, often nefariously. That threatens jobs, consumer choice, and as these companies become states within a state, democracy itself. So, I mean, that's one point of view, right? And there are yeah. bills that are aimed supporting that point of view, bills in, in Congress uh, that, that break up uh, uh, tech power, that in, if, uh, intend to break up tech power. I mean, the, 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 the one most recently cites Google's control of so many pieces of the ad business that that it can force out smaller players who, who provide smaller point solutions. And uh, of course, the classic one is Microsoft controlling the desktop and forcing mm. you to use its browser, crowding out Netscape. There's always been attempts to uh, break up big tech, of course, going back to IBM and AT&T. But the point is that... Uh, Tech may have a gravitational attraction to anti-competitive behavior. Mm. But is, is this the kind of thing that that is important for E Times to, to to delve into? Yes, because you know, because the question really is: should we leave well enough alone, trusting the marketplace and 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 sort of the nature of technology to sort things out, to even things out? Mm. I mean, after all, next generation technologies generally append uh, competitive landscape. But E-Times should shine light on these issues. These, these, yes. these are important things. And mm. there is, of course, one more issue, if you mm. will allow me, that is that has emerged of late, and it's rather an insidious uh, issue. It is this. I'm, I'm quoting now from a book. Uh, I forget which one it is. Mm. The ideology that has come to define Silicon Valley is a hubristic ideology that technological progress should be pursued relentlessly with little, if any, regard for potential costs or dangers to society. Now, that's, a, that's sort of a philosophy, an ideology that is you know, gaining currency more and more and being talked about openly. And, and the leading demagogues are certain uh, venture capitalists who we shall not talk about. But, uh, no. but is, is, you know, and how does this ideology manifest itself? I've been thinking about that. It manifests itself by technology devaluing human freedom by exploiting human weakness. Now that's kind of deep, but, but let me just get into that. Yeah. <laughs> Is that take social media, for example. Hmm. Social media platforms are nothing but cigarettes. They're as addictive as cigarettes. And, and they foster that addiction by exploiting a very simple, specific human primal weakness, which is the need for connection. Yeah. And in doing so, they take over control of human minds. And, you know, I, you, you know the power of Facebook. You know, it, it, Facebook can foment revolutions, uh, you know, various other things Absolutely. that change election results. So, you know, New York Times, I love this quote from uh, 
Tara Swisher about Facebook, she, uh, she says, you built nothing less than a toxic propaganda guidebook for the ages. Mm. So, so that's by exploiting human weakness. Or, you know, another one which has been increasingly my focus is Bitcoin, which mm. is nothing more or less than a Ponzi scheme while pretending to be sort of a, a highly efficient and secure peer-to-peer payment system without a central financial institution. But there is no underlying value to Bitcoin. It's not taken off in retail transactions. Its market value is entirely by, affected by how many coins there are in circulation yes. and how much willing, uh, you know, who, and who's willing to pay for it. But it, by design, it is limited to something like 20 million coins. And, and as you know, the closer the circulating supply gets to the limit, the higher the prices. Correct. So, yeah. so greed is the human weakness that Bitcoin preys off. In fact, any commodity that is an artificial upper unit limit lends itself to speculation, going all the way to tulip mania. My point is that e time should be shining a light into these dark, dark corners. So everything you, uh, you talk about is is underpinned, uh, obviously, by 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 the the foundation, the chips, the semiconductors that enable all of this, but. How does an E-Times reader or audience um, actually sort of stay relevant in that? Yes, I understand that these concepts are, are sort of abstract. I mean, they're yes. higher order concepts, essentially. And why why should the reader care or why? Sh- but I think you, you, get, you do it by respecting the reader. These, these, these are smart people for the most part, and their interests and focus is, is not only on, on the to computer terminal in front of them or, or the lab bench in front of them. It, they want to know. I have to believe that they would like to know uh, the context of what they're doing, their place in the scheme of things, if you would, the uh, history of uh, of their profession and their mm. pursuits and all that, I, I think, I think that I think you elevate the reader by uh, providing him or her with that uh, view, if you would, you know. Mm. So uh, you 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 devalue the reader by saying, no, no, you don't need to know this. You you just focus on on what you're doing. That's where I'm coming from. Okay, what. Uh... What excites you about uh, the future of, of technology and, and the world we're in? I, I think I think uh, I, I'm certainly excited by 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 the fact that the, the distinction, the the time lapse between basic science and technology. Technology is nothing but applied science. Mm. That time lapse is getting shorter. We are uh, we are we are coming. We may be coming close to you know, dealing with fundamental issues, uh, and 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 close to our uh, the end of our knowledge, we, we may be operating at the edge of knowledge in certain cases. Certainly, certainly, quantum computing is is getting up there. That's that's kind of a fun thing. But the other thing also is 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 really. Uh, in, the, in understanding the nature of technology, technology is in, in everything so much around, it's so ambient that 
you know, people grow up without even recognizing that it was any anything different before, uh, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier. You know, it's, they, they take it for granted. But, uh, and, and, and it shapes our thinking, it shapes our culture. You know, I was, I referenced some time ago, uh, the philosopher Martin Heidegger, mm. who says that, Increasingly, this is in our uh, an essay written in the mid fifties. He says we now view nature and increasingly human beings too only technologically. That is, we see nature and people only as raw material for technical operations. Hmm. Now, he used the example then of look of seeing a river as as merely a resource for an electric hydroelectric plant or a forest merely as a resource for a uh, paper manufacturer uh, but isn't that isn't mon- uh, viewing people as merely as monetizable eyeballs isn't that the same sort of thing i mean you know view them only as raw materials for technical operations you know to sell advertising maybe uh, zuckerberg uh, or the you know legendary inventor of uh, bitcoin nakamoto didn't know could pretend that they didn't know what they, how their technology would be used, mm. that they would not anticipate it would be used to sort of enslave people's minds. But that's, that doesn't hold water. You can either fix it or, you know, in, in the Bitcoin case, if you're creating a limited resource, you know there's going to be a feeding frenzy, you know. so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It's certainly an exciting time to be in technology, especially in, in semiconductors today. So, um, uh, Girish, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Nathan. Take care. Thank you to both Girish and Richard for those wonderful insights into EE Time's own story from the early years and how it evolved to be the dominant player in the delivery of stories around the business of technology in the electronics engineering space. Now that you've heard about the ethos of EE Times, do take a look at the EE Times 50th anniversary content pages that we've created to mark this special milestone in the history of our publication. You can find it via the usual site that you know and love. That's www.eetimes.com. This is Nitin Dahad, and thanks for listening. Listening.